Welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Today, we talk about developing your teaching philosophy. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. This is Bonnie Stahoviak, and Dave Stahoviak is back again with me today. Thanks for joining me, Dave. I am always glad to spend time with you. What a pleasure. Today we're talking about something a little bit more long-term for people in their careers as professors. We're looking at teaching philosophy, and we're going to start by looking at what is a person's teaching philosophy. And so for me, the teaching philosophy is a way of articulating how it is I view the role of teaching and learning and also how I play a role in it too. And this is going to be a good episode for me because um, you've, if you've listened to the last few episodes, you know I do not teach full-time, part-time. And I haven't really, I've thought about this a little bit, but not in a formal way. So I think I have a teaching philosophy, but I think the structure we'll go through here today is a little new to me, but it will be helpful to others as well as thinking through how we can actually um, put some words behind the actions and the intentions we have. I think it's somewhat unfortunate, but most of the time people's teaching philosophy and and actually identifying and articulating it doesn't come up in their careers until they're quote unquote forced to do it. So what might force us to do it might be an interview with an institution We want to apply for a role. You're going to need to, in most institutions, have your cover letter, your resume, your CV, but also have accompanying that your teaching philosophy. And so sometimes instances when we apply for tenure or we apply for promotion are going to be other times when we are asked to do this, but it isn't something that we revisit in between. And I think is an important thing for us to think about because it can really help guide us to become better at teaching and anyone listening to this show in general and this episode specifically, I know cares deeply about teaching. And I know when you were applying for tenure, you used uh, the book here that I have in my hand right now called The Academic Portfolio by Selden and Miller. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time today looking at this book because it provides some structure for that. And that, like you said, is a natural time to be thinking of this. But our hope is that it would guide some conversation even before you get to that point. Yeah. And we will have that book in the show notes, a list to it on Amazon. And It's funny, whenever I do go to approach something, I almost always go look for the book that tells you how to do it. So this will be a great resource for anyone who does need to put together an academic portfolio, again, typically applying for promotion and applying for tenure. And that process really gets spelled out well. It's funny because I went upstairs to get it off the bookshelf, Dave, and I had remembered it as a very thin volume. So I'm looking in the bookshelves for something really thin because it it just didn't take that long to read. And it's actually a thick volume. (laughs) And I, I had completely not remembered that it was so thick. The reason being, the first few chapters are more general in nature, defining what an academic portfolio is, what typically is contained in one, some of your generalities that you really do need to know. 
But then they pretty instantly then get into specific examples they have included. And it's a very well-researched book in the sense of they didn't just want to talk in broad terms, here's what tenure should be, but actually people who have attained tenure at specific institutions and, and, and their actual portfolios that they used. Oh, interesting. So yeah, there's a ton of examples. If you just flip through some of the the types of portfolio examples that are included. I know I saw one for political science when I was flipping through someone who's a history professor. What are some other ones you're seeing there? Mm, looks like uh, psychology is in here. I know uh, business and management was in there. Nutritional sciences. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hundreds of pages of samples from all different disciplines. Jazz and contemporary music. Yeah, geology, all kinds of, all kinds of disciplines, foreign languages. So in order to get to those show notes, by the way, it's always at teachinginhighered.com slash, and this is episode four. four. Yeah, slash four. That went by fast. It did. It's amazing. A month of shows already. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, go check those show notes out. And we'd lo- also love to hear from you, your experience. Are, are you early in the process or have you already identified yours? Has it changed over time? We'd love to hear from you in the comments there. So we have talked about what a teaching philosophy is. Let's share a little bit about why it's important. We already mentioned it would be important if you were applying, important if you were going for promotion. Those are, of course, the pragmatic reasons why it's important. But if we delve a little bit deeper, I wish we talked about this more often, not just when we formally had to do something. It seems such a transactional type of exposure then to thinking about one's teaching philosophy. And I have not found that the most enjoyable time to articulate things like teaching philosophies, because you're already under pressure to produce all this documentation to prove that you're worth it or whatever. So at any rate, I think it really does help us get to the heart of why we teach, why it matters, how we have an impact, what we believe. And that, of course, translates into the classroom. And I probably sold myself short a little bit earlier, Bonnie, as one of the graduate courses I teach is on educational theory. And while we don't specifically talk about teaching philosophy, we do talk about different theories of uh, education and how that shows up in the classroom. And I find that some of the things I do are very different than some of the other faculty in the program as far as just running a class and structure of a course. And so we talk about the positives and negatives of each of those different philosophies and why one might be good in one situation with one group of students and one might be good in a different situation with a different topic. And I find that that is helpful for me, even as a faculty member, to think through what it is that, why would I make some choices to do different things in different situations and depending on the discipline I'm teaching, depending on the students and why may I make some different decisions in different situations. I have been included on grant proposals in the past because of not just my academic background, but my training background. Before I was in academia, I was a training professional and and spent more than a decade in the franchise industry in training. And so I had oftentimes when, when you are listed in a grant, you, you, if it's a, a grant that has something to do with education, which so often ours do or training, you do need to articulate what is it that is your philosophy about learning? How is it going to be structured? And for actually, this is the first time Dave, you and I have both been listed on a grant. I won't go into specifics because we won't know how it turns out for a while yet. But Dave and I were both listed and and I took out a proposal that we had done previously and had won for a major institution here in Orange County. And part of, I think, why we were able to 
get that contract was because we articulated not just a training, but a whole framework of what was going to happen before the actual training itself. And we did have in that case, and this was mostly your project, Dave, that that you had developed, but I know I worked with you on it, but articulated what was going to happen before the actual training events to sort of prime the people for the learning get them introduced to some vocabulary and some models before they came for those face-to-face sessions. And then thinking even about after and having some coaching and mentoring going on. And that all, when I went back to look at the proposal, it wasn't just about a formula, but, but why, why is it structured this way? How is this going to actually ultimately achieve the outcomes they were looking for? Yeah. And it, and we did actually put that together, I'd know which one you're talking about, through the lens of what do we do best in the classroom experience. So we structured the program so the time that we spent with that group in person really played to the strengths of the instructors who were involved. And then the times that it was virtual and there were some online components that really played to strengths that we normally wouldn't be as strong with in a classroom experience. And so we were actually able to do some program design around uh, things that would play to the strengths of the people involved, which was mm-hmm. really cool and very successful ultimately. So we've looked at what a teaching philosophy is, why it's important. The rest of the episode is going to be how to identify, articulate, and refine our teaching philosophy over time. Now, Dave, the book that you have in your hand had some questions I found really useful when I was putting together my portfolio for tenure. Yeah, and this is from page 13 on the book we mentioned. Uh, the, some of the questions they ask is, what do I believe about the role of a teacher, the role of a student? Why do I teach the way I do? What does learning look like when it happens? Why do I choose the teaching strategies and the methods that I use? And how do I assess my students' learning? And I will put those questions in the show notes in case anyone just wants to go through those as prompts, as a follow-up from listening, you want to think through those. And I, although I really do encourage you to check out the book, it's a valuable resource. It will be on my bookshelf for years to come. And I have some questions that I have found useful. I'll also include in the show notes, including who are my students? I find this question if you ask people, or even if they just start talking about it on their own, really says a lot about who we are as teachers and what we believe. And it's so easy for us sometimes to, oh, those Gen Xers, they're always with the text, so they never pay attention. And to start to frame a perspective of just how terrible today's students are, and that's going to frame... And in, in I would consider a pretty, pretty bad way how you approach teaching. It's going to be a lot more transactional. It's going to be a lot more punishments, rewards. And, and so that, that, can, that can just be something to, to ponder and to think about who are my students. How I describe them says a lot about how I approach my teaching. Next is who am I as an educator? What does that mean to be an educator, a teacher? How I describe myself says a lot about my teaching too. So I had an interesting dialogue slash debate with, not, it wasn't a debate, it was a dialogue with a, a, a person in higher ed. And he was saying, there was, a, there was a blog post about really a very much of a 
student directed learning experience where and it's kind of how you approach your graduate classes Dave where it's I know one of one of your classes you have sort of a menu of things that you might explore on a session and they get to vote and 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 have some participation I just did a session wrapping up a doctoral course yesterday and I had some things I needed to address to it to really focus on the learning outcomes and close out our time. But there was an hour or so that I, I, we sort of developed our own agenda out of what they really wanted to see. And so my colleague, and granted, he was speaking of undergraduates, he was speaking to the tone of, well, they don't know what they don't know. And I don't mm-hmm. like that because I, I had sent them this article about just this different method of teaching a new a new learning theory he hadn't heard of before and neither had I. And so it was sort of interesting. And, and I do believe, by the way, at the undergraduate level, that's a different framework than, than me just finishing off with doctoral students. So don't misunderstand. We definitely approach those things differently. I still think, though, that even at the undergraduate level, to me, the role of a teacher is more of a facilitator of learning And if that means that the best way to facilitate that learning is for me to bring in an episode of this great podcast called Planet Money, oh, I just got the best episode I'm going to use in the fall that looked at this woman who became a businesswoman in North Korea. Oh, interesting. Oh, it was, it's going to be so great. It's going to hit on so many learning outcomes. But if that's the best way to grab their imaginations, it doesn't have to be me. I can play that 12 minute clip and then ask some questions of them and get them grappling with what does it mean to be an entrepreneur and what is it like to live under capital or communism? And, and, oh, anyway, so that, that's a, are we facilitators of learning or are we providers of information? Yeah, and this this is where I think the who my student is 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 a good broad question in general as a as a professor or a, a instructor in higher ed, but also is helpful in an in individual classroom depending on the discipline, the age of the students, their experiences. So you mentioned mm-hmm. something that I do, and uh, I teach a five week graduate courses a couple times a year, and one's on educational theory, and there's a Saturday, and on the Saturday. We do like a mind map. I prepare a mind map in advance, and we do kind of a pick and choose what you want to talk about because all of them reach the learning objective, so it's just kind of the way that we get there. That works amazingly well, and people talk about that, and they like that a lot. I think that would be really a poor choice for like a traditional age undergraduate population. People would, these are working professionals. They've been in the field. They've been in the program for years. You know, they're, they're, um, they've had a lot of experience. They have the tools to be able to guide those choices. Whereas a 18 year old, um, who's, you know, a freshman or sophomore in a traditional program doesn't really have those same kind of tools and being more directive and structured, I think is a generally speaking, a smarter choice. So, um, but that's the kind of thing that I've taught both of those populations. And I teach very differently depending on who it is I know, or at least I can anticipate that's going to show up in the classroom. The next question that's really driven my teaching philosophy is what are the artifacts of my teaching? Now, what some of the examples I'm going to have here have to do with a lot of times, but when people talk about organizational culture, so organizational culture, the experts there say, how do you define a culture? How do you tell what it is? Will you go and you see what artifacts are there to describe it? So when I teach about organizational culture, I talk about when I used to work at a large academic institution and they, you would go through and walk through just 
the maze of cubicles in this particular department. And what you would see along the way was just the nameplates of people. You know, that there are those cubes that are made out of bulletin board type thing where you could, you oh, could like stick a, a cork board. Kind you of could still not a cork board, but like you could stick a pin in it if you wanted to, but they were all blank all the way down. And and so you'd go like, oh, this is kind of drab, kind of depressing. And of course, the fluorescent lights, you know, it kind of get those weird flickers sometimes. And it looked, it was a really long, long department, just maze of cubes and no real personality. And so what that, that what does that tell you about the culture? And I, I can't go on too much of a tangent here, or we won't stick to our, our, our time frame. But so those are artifacts. What do, what do those tell you about someone's organizational culture? Well, we can do the same thing about our teaching. What are the artifacts of our teaching? What are those observable things? If I came into your classroom, or I looked at your online class, what would I see? What would I hear? What would I experience that might be evidence of your teaching philosophy? And I think one of those for me that I think of is just what do you show up in the classroom with? Do you mm-hmm. show up with a laptop? Do you show up with, um, how do you arrange the classroom when mm-hmm. you get there uh, to the extent that you can? Do you show up with PowerPoint slides? If you do, what do they look like? Um, I know mine look very different than most faculty members. Mine usually have four or five slides for you know a two or three hour class. And mostly it's just a question on a slide. It's not, you know, here's what you need to learn. I assume they already walk in with that at the graduate level. So those kinds of things, just what you show up with and what you, what kinds of ways you're using different methodologies can, um, can really uh, be helpful. And one of the things to watch out for here is actually also someone who writes a lot about organizational leadership, Chris Argerus. He talks about espoused beliefs versus theories in use. So here you might, as you started to reflect on your teaching philosophy and answering some of those questions that we've identified here, you might have an idea, for example, oh, I believe that a teacher is a facilitator of learning And then if you start to look at your artifacts, those things I can see, experience, hear, if I were to go observe in your classroom or look at your online, would I actually see things that support that? Or do you have espoused beliefs that are different than the theories that are actually in use in your teaching? Yeah, and that's where sometimes someone else can be helpful in helping you to identify that. Often we're so close to it that it's helpful if we have a friend or colleague who can really help us to get some more clarity around that. So that is a look at teaching philosophy, at at what it is, why it's important, and some of the ways that you can identify it. Again, I encourage you to visit the show notes. We would love to hear from you about your experiences and what more you might want help with. But before we close off today's episode, it is that time where we share our ed tech tools. And so Dave, do you, do you want to start out this time your EdTech tool? I would love to. This one is not specific to EdTech. It is a great resource though. And I know some people have heard of it already. It's called lynda.com. It's L-Y-N-D-A.com. What lynda.com is, is it is a online resource for learning all kinds of things. Uh, originally, it was for learning 
software and any kind of software program out there, and it is still very much focused on that. However, they now have instructional videos on many, many topics, learning an instrument or learning a business skill, all kinds of types of things. Um, one thing that we use it for regularly, uh, in fact, this just happened last month, Bonnie, we were working on a project for a client. We all of a sudden, halfway through the project, made a decision that we needed to use a different software uh, tool than we had anticipated using that neither of us had had much experience with, or you had years ago, version, not with the current yeah. version. So we signed up for Linda membership for a month. Um, we had previously had memberships for a while and we let it expire and we signed up again and spent you know an hour or so getting up to speed on the things that were different that we knew we needed to know. And it was super helpful at helping us to be successful with that project. So it's a great place to turn if you're looking to get up to speed on how to use some software and virtually anything out there that's software technolo technology related on a computer, you can find a course for even things on how to use Windows or how to use the Mac operating system. All of that's there. So I continue to use that as a resource and it's a great go-to, um, you know, 15 years ago, you had to learn software in the classroom. You had to go take a class somewhere. Now you can learn so much of it online through screencasting, and it's really inexpensive. I think it's $25 a month, um, and you can sign up for like a year or two if you want. But uh, it's a great way to learn, and especially during the summer here, it's a great way to keep your skills sharp if you're not uh, already doing other things for professional development. I get their emails of what new titles have just come out, and they just announced a partnership with the author of the book, Getting Things Done. His name is David Allen. And so it's not, as Dave just said, it's not just software, although he and I have typically used it for the, that type of a perspective. But I love that they now have the opportunity to go learn more about your productivity and become better at time management and task management. And that book and that philosophy, Getting Things Done, often abbreviated GTD, is something that is central to the way that I manage my whole entire life. And so I, I really look forward to seeing seeing what's going on with that partnership and what kinds of courses are offered. Yeah, I love getting things done. It's a great framework and a, a great framework for faculty too to utilize if you're looking for a good time management system. So uh, check out David Allen's book if that's something you're looking into. Lynda.com also great can be used in the classroom. They have a whole educators model too, where you can set oh, I'd up, forgotten about yeah, that. set up a class. And so your students can actually buy it and then you get that for free. So if you were uh, teaching a class that needed to use Microsoft Excel, they could buy just the classes that you prescribe. And then the costs are, are just like a textbook. Then the costs are burdened by the students, but the cost actually, it's, I mean, it's a great cost even for students to I, do. I looked into it for a course that we were putting together and it was really inexpensive mm -hmm. and you could track student participation and then they can kind of watch what they need to watch on skills. It's, it's, it's a cool system. Yeah. And then my ed tech tool is polleverywhere.com. Poll Everywhere is one of those tools that we could actually spend the whole episode just talking about different creative ways to do it. So I'm just going to introduce it now. It is a great way of polling or quizzing. In, and it's one of those tools that you can use a number of different ways. You could use it asynchronously, meaning you could have a poll that was on your learning management system that people could take. But I have found that it's best use, and I think it's original intended use, is for live polling. So you're in a classroom and you are talking about the four P's of marketing and you notice that there's not a whole lot of engagement going on, you can actually then bring up some polls and start to quiz them and they answer you via their cell phone. 
there's actually a number of ways they can answer. They can answer via text message, which I think is always the easiest way, but they also can answer via Twitter. They can answer via the web. It, so it's, it's, it really is poll everywhere. Literally pretty much if, if you've got a device, there's a way to respond to one of their polls. So I used it with the doctoral class I just taught most recently. Sometimes I would ask broad questions. So it was a technology and leadership class that I was teaching. So a lot of them were very resistant to technology and you could just see it in their faces the first day. I was, hi, you're going to love me in this class. And so I, there was a lot of resistance. And so I said, what are the three words that you think of when you read the course description? And I had it build a word cloud. And so you saw the word challenge, difficult, it, those would really, really get bold because the more people that answered with that word, the bolder and bigger it would get, just like oh, a word cloud does. And we just wrapped up recently. And so I asked the question of what's the biggest impact that you got out of the class? And that one I did more as a, as, as a short answer. So it wasn't a word cloud, but you could see it all popping up just like it was text messages. And then one of the things I did was have each one of the learning outcomes up there and say, they, this was a multiple choice. So I, I achieved this learning outcome and I'd read it off and then they'd say strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. And that was a nice way to end where they could really look back at this difficult perception they had of this class. And it was so fun seeing them walk out with so much confidence. And then even having the evidence that says, of course, I have the work product too, that it has been evaluated against extensive rubrics. So it's not just an arbitrary thing, but how nice that the students perception that they attain these learning outcomes was very much mirrored with my rubrics and my assessment of their work. So that was really nice too. So poll everywhere. That's just the beginning of how you can use that tool. And it is one I really highly recommend. And bring some quantitative elements to evaluation that you uh, would normally only get on course evaluation. So you can do some of that during the class, which is exciting. Oh yeah, absolutely. So check it out and let us know what ideas you have for using Poll Everywhere or anything else. Let us know what questions you have and we are looking forward to your continued listening to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hey, did you see you had a review for the show on iTunes already? I did. Anyone else who's listening who would like to leave us a review, it helps so much for other people to discover the show. Hey, thanks for listening and uh, see you in a week, huh? See you in a week. Take care. <laughs>